What is the stuff of cities? What should be the stuff of cities? Brick and stone in our experience and in our imaginations is warm, colorful, textured, natural. The landscape of a city can be peppered with the colors of brick, red, yellow, brown, providing visual interest along a street where the buildings might all be the same. Variety of color adds life, some humanity, to the buildings in our cities. Or the opposite can be true too, as is the case in Beacon Hill, Boston. Settled in the 17th century, the red brick buildings of this neighborhood define its narrow streets. Beacon Hill is iconic precisely for its cohesiveness, which over generations, combined with its history and prominent people, has created a clear sense of neighborhood identity. See, the thing is, a brick you can pick up and hold in your hand. Brick as a material is associated with a craft. It has involved effort, creativity. Masonry, after all, is the building of structures from individual units, which are often laid in and bound together by mortar. Masonry is generally considered a highly durable form of construction, a good way of using good materials and human hands to build cities. In contrast, I was in England recently touring Canary Wharf and its local tube station with a local architect, marveling as he extolled the shapes, forms, and art of concrete as we walked across one Canada square. So named, of course, as a result of the leadership of Canadian developers in getting it built, but that's another story for another podcast. Whereas North Americans often romanticize the virtues and qualities of European cities, this architect was lamenting that he had not yet had an opportunity to visit one of the great concrete cities of our age, my city, Toronto. Needless to say, you can imagine my surprise. A deeper appreciation of the role Toronto has played in developing and exploring architectural forms through concrete is somewhat wanting locally. Although I must acknowledge attempts to advance the conversation have been made, including a comprehensive guide to concrete architecture from the 50s to the 70s, known as Concrete Toronto. And trust me, it is well worth a read. But as my host and I descended the massive elevator bank into the hollow of the former West India Dock, where the transit station was laid out, so to speak, at Canary Wharf, the elegance of the integration of the concrete detailing struck me as being in deep contrast to the traditional, brutalist associations we tend to make when we think of concrete buildings. Despite being from a city of concrete myself, and in fact working in an iconic concrete building, City Hall, I was seeing the possibility of concrete through new eyes. I already knew it as an inexpensive, easy to make and mix and pour at a large scale. But concrete is the most widely used building material on earth. And here's the rub. The production of cement, its basic building block at the nanoscale, accounts for about 5% of the world's total carbon dioxide emissions. If we care about making our cities more sustainable, we'll care about finding ways of reducing that carbon footprint through manipulation of the materials, again at the nanoscale, and through more sustainable uses of the material itself. I'm not worried about where we go with the design of concrete. We've already demonstrated, and Canary Wharf is a testament to this, 
that concrete can be elegant, cathedral-like. What I am worried about is the sustainability of our cities. Does concrete have a role to play? I'm Jennifer Kiesmat, and this is Invisible City. Joining me today in studio from Boston is Jeremy Gregory, the Executive Director of MIT Concrete Sustainability Hub. Jeremy's an engineer who studies the economic and environmental implications of materials, their recycling, and their end-of-life recovery. Welcome, Jeremy. I'm going to begin by maybe paint, having you paint a little bit of a portrait. You know, why does this matter? Why does concrete matter in our cities today? Concrete's the most used building material in the world, and there's a reason for that. It provides a lot of services that cities need in order to thrive, uh, and it's very efficient. Uh, We just use four ingredients in concrete, rock, sand, water, and cement. And so just by combining those four things, we can do many, many different things. And it's because of that versatility uh, and its durability that it's used all over the world. Well, I was amazed to read that, in fact, concrete is the most abundantly used construction material on the planet. It's used, uh, it's used, you know, second only to water. It must be then, when we're thinking about building structures, building places, that concrete is really the bedrock of modern civilization. Is that a fair thing to say? Absolutely. It's uh, an important foundation in just about uh, every building, in every pavement, uh, in bridges. It's used uh, all over the place. So tell me a little bit about the Concrete Sustainability Hub. You know, what is it? What do you do? um, And what are you trying to achieve? Sure. The Concrete Sustainability Hub at MIT is, uh, it's funded by the Portland Cement Association, which is an industry association in the U.S. uh, for the cement producers, and also the Ready Mix Concrete Research and Education Foundation, which is an educational arm of the the trade group for the ReadyMix concrete producers. And the reason that they came to MIT is to say, you know, there's been a lot of work that's been done on trying to improve the performance and the environmental footprint of concrete, you know, but uh, in order for us to truly make advances in sustainability of concrete, we need to rethink the way that we think about the materials that are used and also the places where they're used. So thinking about the sustainability of concrete is actually not just about the material itself. It's also the ways in which it's used. So how is concrete used in buildings? How is it used in pavements? How is it used in other kinds of uh, infrastructure? Uh, And so it turns out you can't just have a materials mindset. And as a consequence, we have a really multidisciplinary team at MIT that includes people who are studying the materials, uh, and then people who are thinking about engineering, people are thinking about economics, environmental impacts, uh, uh, social science, all sorts of things, because that's how we truly make advances in sustainability is taking a real broad systems perspective. So a big part of our conversation here today is going to be about the sustainability piece. So I don't want to go too far away from that, but I want to take one step back a minute. Uh, On our walk over from City Hall to the studio here, we're actually talking about the concrete sidewalks and Mm -hmm. the stamping that is unique to Toronto in the sidewalks. And it occurred to me, literally beneath our feet, uh, everyone every day in the city is walking on concrete 
in the city of Toronto anyway, um, other than in the fancier places where there might be a, a material like granite, uh, which is not very often in a city like Toronto. But it strikes me that concrete is ever present in so many parts of our city. And I think for most of us, we just don't really think about it as a key material. And because it is a key material, that leads us to the relevance of getting the sustainability piece right, because it plays such a really big role. Paint a bit of a portrait for our listeners. Uh, where are all the different places and spaces in the physical makeup of the city that you're going to see concrete every day? or And even the spaces where you won't see it, just like, you know, on the sidewalk, I'm walking every day and I'm not thinking, wow, thank God for this concrete getting me from point A to B, but it's there and it's a critical part of the infrastructure of the city. Sure. Um, well, I'm an engineer and I like to think about cross sections. Like, let's imagine we could just cut through uh, the city from the, <laughs> the tallest building and go all the way down to underground, okay? There would literally be concrete at every level. Uh, in your skyscrapers, concrete is often a structural element that helps uh, those uh, have their vast height um, and also withstand hazards like uh, earthquakes and uh, strong winds. So concrete's in the uh, buildings. Getting down lower, um, it's often used in bridges, or I should say it, it's always used in, always in bridges yeah, and sure. uh, in elevated highways like you have here in Toronto. And um, so you get it at, at those uh, heights as well. Um, on the pavements, it's often used in places where you have a lot of heavy weights. So in, in uh, Toronto, uh, all of those uh, trolley tracks or train tracks those have concrete. Um, and on many of the roads that surround the city, there's also concrete. And then as we go underground, uh, regardless of what a building is made out of above ground, it's going to have concrete in that foundation uh, to help uh, keep it uh, strong and, and durable. And then there's a lot of infrastructure underground that also uses concrete uh, pipes and uh, uh, all sorts of things associated with utilities and sewer systems. So literally from thousands of meters high or maybe not that, hundreds of meters high <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and uh, many meters underground, you have uh, concrete all over the place. So as we know, Toronto came of age really in the age of concrete. There's a ton of concrete in this city yeah. and you know there's a real celebration, I think very recently of concrete mm -hmm. uh, as an important building material. But before that time, before we started to say, hey, wait a minute, there's some really good things about concrete. It was actually seen as kind of a crude material. It was perceived as being cheap. It wasn't about creating something beautiful. I'm wondering if you can just comment a little bit on the evolution of the thinking of the material from kind of being the cheap, ugly duckling, duckling to, to the transition to begin thinking about, well, wait a minute, concrete can actually be part of high design and something that is a sophisticated part of the city. Can you maybe talk about that trajectory and, and the moment we're in now? Absolutely, yeah. Um, I think that, as, as you mentioned, originally concrete was seen purely as utilitarian, right? It's just going to serve a very basic function as a foundation or, uh, you know, to help uh, keep tall structures in place, uh, things like that. Um, over time, though, I think there were innovations in the ways that you could shape concrete, right? Uh, it starts out as a liquid, right? right? Uh, and, and something that can be molded into many different forms. And there's a lot of people in the architecture community who saw that and basically said, you know, we can do some highly versatile things because we're starting with the liquid that we transform into a solid, right? So as long as we just have something that puts it in the shape that we want it, we can do some amazing things. And I think it's that 
understanding of the versatility and how that would evolve uh, uh, that allowed people to push the boundaries in terms of what could then be done with concrete. So if we think about, you know, in ancient times when concrete was used in Rome, I guess, for the first time, how was it? How was it formed and shaped then in comparison to how it's formed and shaped now? Like what has been that evolution that has led us to really think about and recognize concrete as being kind of a really important material in our city building? Sure. Um, Concrete even goes back to before Roman times. Uh, I think uh, there's been some people who've made some interesting arguments that Concrete uh, is actually what allowed us as a species to evolve beyond just hunter-gatherer societies. And the reason for that is because it allowed us to build durable structures. So you're saying it actually played a role in the evolution of the species. So we're not just talking here about a nice building material. We're actually talking about something that has fundamentally shaped the way we live. Absolutely. It's providing shelter. And shelter is something that we needed in order to move beyond just hunter-gatherer societies to saying, let's build cities, right? And the Romans, I think, though, were the first to really capitalize on that. Now, what's different, uh, what the Romans did compared to what we uh, do now is that, you know, I mentioned that concrete is basically a a composite of four materials, right? right? Uh, A cement or a, a cementitious material water, and then sand and aggregate or or, or rocks, right? Um, So today we use uh, a cement that's called Portland cement predominantly. And that, uh, the the Portland has nothing to do with the city or anything. It (laughs) comes from um, the the person who invented it, uh, used materials from the Isle of Portland just out uh, off the coast of England. Um, And so that's where it came from. So Portland cement is what we use today. uh, And it's basically, but a cementitious material is anything that you mix with water and then it turns into a hard paste or glue that can keep those other things together. So what the Romans were using was ash from the volcanoes nearby. And so volcanic ash is a cementitious material mm, that when you amazing. mix it with water, um, it, it hardens. And, and when you add those rocks, it makes it even stronger, right? Um, so the amazing thing about that, what they were doing is that they uh, figured figured all this stuff out, and that yet we still have things that were made out of concrete thousands of years ago that are standing uh, today. Um, what's interesting, though, about what they were doing compared to today is that you know they had to wait a long time for it to harden. Right? Um, there were other trade offs that they were dealing with. They were just so glad to have concrete. I don't think they minded. But, right, right. but uh, today we've had many innovations since then that allow us to uh, make concrete that has different strengths, that has different formability, that can be some can be constructed easier than others. And so, uh, uh, it, you know, it all looks like the same stuff, but really there's many, many different types of concrete that can suit different types of applications. So let me fast forward to 2016. And in many of our cities in North America, we built expressways and those expressways are now crumbling because they've been left in a state of disrepair. Some of them have suffered because of uh, salt damage and other material damages. What you're telling me is that the Romans figured out how to use concrete and some of that material that they created has sustained, been sustained over thousands of years. And yet we've got expressways we built 50 years ago that are crumbling and falling to the ground and creating this incredible infrastructure challenge, let alone the design issues, yeah. but there's this, there's this expense associated with repairing repairing them. Yeah. Unpack that for me. Like, yeah. how does that make any yeah. sense? Yeah. 
any type of uh, sustainable design is going to be a trade-off between performance, cost, and environmental impacts. And so whether people do it explicitly or implicitly, they're always doing trade-offs among those things. So nowadays, uh, a really important element for anyone doing construction is how quickly can I get people back on this road? Right. Right. Any of your constituents. So you're saying we take shortcuts? Uh, not necessarily shortcuts, but it's basically you make decisions about uh, uh, what's how this is going to be built and how it's going to be constructed. That are trade offs with that. I guarantee you, any engineer that said, "If you give me a higher budget and more time, I can make something that lasts even longer." Right. It's just it's going to come at a cost. Right. 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 Um, and so so I, I think it's fair to say that those are trade offs and not necessarily shortcuts. And we all make those decisions uh, every day in our life. Right. In terms of uh, if, if we could start building our own home from scratch, we would make those same decisions about trade offs between time and performance. And time is obviously about uh, cost. And so. Um, so when it comes to the uh, the elevated expressways that you're you're, you're talking about, uh, I mean, lasting sixty years is 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 pretty good, particularly given the environment that you're talking about that it's uh, exposed to, um, and. Uh, Durability is also something that can be hard to predict. Uh, and so we often design things thinking it's going to last this long. And sometimes uh, we, there are conditions we just don't expect. And that's part of the uncertainty about design for uh, infrastructure. So I think what I'm sort of hearing in your answer is that the Romans took a bit of a longer view, that they were willing to do it a bit differently with a longer view, creating an infrastructure that would in fact last for a longer period of time. Is is that is that fair to say? Um you know, they made I, different choices. I obviously don't know for sure, but if if I were to speculate, I would say part of it is that they probably got lucky, um, <laughs> and that basically they had a really good material. Damn, they, modern <laughs> man! <laughs> <laughs> they basically they did they they. I don't think they were worried about cost, right? So I think that was one thing. So they definitely had that luxury, but they also hadn't innovated enough to be able to say how do we use different types of cements? How do we even manipulate this to have something that would right. set quicker. They just, they ended up having a material that was very durable. Now there's no question they built it with durability in mind, but I think they also had no idea how long it would last. So I think I think they definitely deserve kudos for taking that long-term perspective, but I also don't know that it's fair to say that they knew that they were having trade-offs <laughs> in terms of uh, time and cost and things I like that. I can't believe so. you're willing to just think they were lucky. But, I, <laughs> but anyway, but this leads right into the conversation about sustainability because the extent to which the concrete can last a very long time, in fact, from a life cycle costing perspective, increases its score or its ranking in terms of sustainability. And we do know that uh, there's actually quite a bit of embedded energy that's required to make the concrete in the first place. But if we can stretch that out over a longer lifespan, that the sustainability score of that product is going to increase exponentially. So we actually today in our cities, wanting to make them sustainable, 
affordable, also to ensure that we're building infrastructure that's that's going to last, buildings that are going to last, foundations that are going to last. We want to ensure that it will uh, extend over a long period of time. So just talk about that a little bit. You know, what are the innovations we're making today? What should we expect? And how does concrete score from a sustainability perspective? Um, so... When we teach uh, our undergraduate students or graduate students at MIT about these life cycle considerations, uh, there's an approach that's called life cycle assessment that can be used to quantify environmental impacts of a product or process from cradle to grave or cradle to cradle, as people like to talk about as well, if you're using it. And so you can use that to look at environmental impacts or costs. One of the examples we often start off with is a comparison between um, drinking from a disposable cup of paper or plastic and let's say, you know, a, wa a reusable water bottle, right? So this mug that I have right here is made from a ceramic. And as you might uh, imagine, the embodied environmental impacts for that or the environmental impacts associated with the materials and the manufacturing is higher mm -hmm, than a mm -hmm. paper or a plastic cup, right? So if I use that mug once and then toss it, then obviously the the more sustainable or the lower environmental impact solution and cost for that matter is going <laughs> to be that cup or that plastic one. So you can so there's an investment that you make in the ceramic mug in terms of cost and environmental impacts that is then uh, paid back over time the more that you reuse it. I actually really like that example. It's the um, when you compare something that's disposable it has less, it has you know less energy to make it less um, Im embedded energy, but in fact, its uh, sustainability is very low because you're only using it once or using using it twice. So on the flip side, you have a material that involves significantly more investment to make, but it's entire life chain is in fact stretched out over such a significant amount of time that its sustainability score in fact skyrockets. That's essentially what you're telling so me. So going off of the example of the a reusable mug compared to a, a paper you, a cup or a plastic cup, you know, when it comes to infrastructure, we obviously don't have explicitly, typically disposable uh, options. Um but we, we do have considerations to make about the lifespan of something that we build. Uh, and that can definitely go into a, a, an assessment of what's the environmental impact of that. So often, you know, I hear claims about something being a green material. Uh, and believe, this happens in any industry. I have a green material for you, right? Um, and for, for me, that, that very well may be. Maybe the embodied impacts of making that material are lower than a, an, an alternative. But what you really have to think about it is, is two things. Uh, how long is it going to last and how long is it going to be before you have to replace it? Um, and then also, if it's used in something that has uh, what we call a, a use phase associated with it where there's environmental impacts, how does that material affect the the use phase. So for example, vehicles uh, is something that everyone's very familiar with. You can imagine that when we do those life cycle environmental impacts of a vehicle, you know, that use phase, basically, how much energy is it using to move the car? How much fuel is it using? It must score pretty poorly. Uh, well, I mean, it just, <laughs> it, it's, it's all that total life cycle environmental impacts that use phase is significant, you know, right. 80, 90% of the, the total, right? So you want to use 
any material or any innovation that you can in order to reduce that use phase uh, right. impact, and right? And concrete, on the other hand, must score pretty high in the use phase in terms of, well, I guess it depends what it's for. It does, it for does. For a sidewalk? For a sidewalk, there's no real uh, emissions associated with uh, right. the use phase of the sidewalk. But there it comes back to a replacement rate. So I've definitely seen alternative materials that can be used in a sidewalk. Uh, and I heard, heard about a city that used some uh, sidewalk material that was made up of like recycled tires, right, or some something to that effect, um, and but they were replacing it every few years, uh, and yeah, so, so basically, so yeah. So I don't know how many t- there, there's there's a crossover point, right, at which uh, basically after you replace it so many times, then that cumulative life cycle impact of that uh, other material becomes higher than using the concrete. So these life cycle considerations are really important when it comes to the choice of a material affecting energy consumption of, say, a building, or believe it or not, it also affects the energy consumption uh, in, in pavements. So uh, let me talk about the, the the pavements first. It turns out that the way that you design and maintain pavements affects the fuel efficiency of the vehicles that are driving over those pavements. Amazing. Um, and so basically, uh, if you're driving on a really bumpy road, for example- Sure, it's going to take more fuel. It does. And because there's a lot of energy that goes into the, the suspension system in your vehicle- and there's additional uh, energy that your vehicle has to overcome in order to drive on that that bumpy road. And so we call that excess fuel consumption. There's a certain amount of fuel that's right. required to move your vehicle forward. And then that excess amount is due to uh, driving over a bumpy road. Or it turns out if you're also driving on a road that has a lot of what we call deflection, uh, basically, because the weight of the vehicles makes uh, the, a very small indentation in it. It's kind of like you're continuously driving up... Uh, a uh, a small hill. There's resistance. Exactly. So that's it's it's called rolling resistance, and so there's additional excess fuel consumption associated with that. As as an extreme example, um, you know, if you're uh, it takes more energy for someone to run on a beach than it does to run on a sidewalk. And it's the same phenomenon because you're def- there's more deflection associated with your weight in the, in the sand. Um, and that's been measured by all kinds of uh, scientists studying that. So so basically a thicker pavement that has, uh, or more stiffness can help to overcome that. And that, that's particularly right. more important for heavier vehicles like trucks. So it turns out this excess fuel consumption is only maybe like a couple extra percent one or 2% for each individual vehicle. But when you magnify that across all the vehicles that uh, are driving on the, the roads, then it becomes a significant deal. And it's amazing because as you're talking, I'm thinking about how you kind of take the city as an aggregate. And when you look at the environmental impact as an aggregate, you have to look at that road material and the impact that it's going to have on every single vehicle. And when you aggregate that, the putting a lower level of investment into maintaining your roads, for example, when you aggregate the impact in terms of the amount of additional fuel that you're consuming in your city, it becomes really significant. It does. Yeah, absolutely. And the interesting thing is that obviously getting people to drive less and to use more fuel efficient vehicles is important and we want to be able to push that. But that's something where you have to engage millions of people in the Toronto area as an example. Um, When it comes to maintaining roads, that's just a few people who are really making those key decisions. So obviously trying to do both. They're really big decisions and they involve those life cycle considerations and other 
interests of stakeholders. But um, what we're trying to do, and a lot of the research we do at MIT and the Concrete Sustainability Hub, is how do we quantify those life cycle environmental impacts and and, and costs? So you've kind of segued now, and this is right where I wanted to go um, into measures and how we evaluate. And when we talk about something being sustainable, uh, sometimes we get the measures wrong. Essentially, what you're saying, you know, a municipality thinks, hey, we're going to use these great recycled tires to make our sidewalks, uh, and because they're recycled, thinks that the the because of the production actually scoring better from a sustainability perspective, they end up putting in a material that over its you know cradle to cradle consumption actually is quite high because it needs to be replaced because it doesn't have a very long shelf life. So getting the measures right and having a pretty uh, comprehensive approach to the measures is a really important part of ensuring that we're embracing materials that we might not historically have thought of as being sustainable. Now, one of the most tangible ways we do this in our urban environments is through LEED standards, uh, leadership in environmental design, um, looking at the, uh, you know, for those who, who may not be familiar, LEED standards can be based on a building scale or more recently on a neighborhood scale, but if, if essentially include a whole series of metrics to evaluate how sustainable a project is overall. And in general, these LEED standards and the accreditation associated with LEED has really pushed the industry uh, to think differently about energy consumption, about waste management, the recycling of construction materials associated with a given project. From your perspective, does LEED get it right when it comes to understanding the sustainability implications and opportunity around concrete? LEED, I think, is an important enabler of uh, pushing the building industry forward to try to reduce its environmental impacts. Um, the other thing about LEED is that it's a multi-stakeholder process that involves a lot of people making decisions about what is going to what's going to be in lead and what isn't going to. So I think they have an extremely challenging task. I, you know, I think the analogy there is it, they're trying to move a, a huge cargo ship, right? And I think they are moving that ship in the right direction. However, I think that um, there are reasonable questions to ask about whether some of the things that they're incentivizing actually lead to more sustainable uh uh, outcomes. So there might be some holes. Give give me some examples. Um, so, for example, right now in the newest version of LEED, which is version four, there are points that are available for uh, using building products from a company that has quantified the environmental footprint of the products that are of their 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 product. And that's that's great. Um, and well, except when you've got the rubber sidewalk making guy who's going, "Hey, look at my rubber sidewalk, all made from recycled materials." Rah rah rah! Isn't it fabulous? Well, hold on a minute. You might be being sold a bill of goods when you discover that you need to replace them every five years. Yeah. Right. This, so this is the challenge. It's absolutely the challenge. Um, where basically they a, any company quantifies the environmental footprint of its product and. And uh, the developer or whoever is commissioning the the certification process gets points just for using someone who's quantified that. 
Um, however, there isn't then an assessment to say, is this good for the building? How does this compare with another one? And I think that's partially uh, because lead is also an incremental process where I think they know that that isn't a perfect solution, but really the direction that they want ahead then is to next say, you know, what is that overall? How does that have implications on the overall environmental footprint of my building. So we're busy building lots of buildings using a ton of concrete in in Toronto. Um, are those buildings uh, they they were concrete before lead existed? True. Um, are those buildings now getting points, so to speak, for being concrete, even though they're concrete anyway? Because concrete is actually a beneficial material for a whole variety of other reasons as well. Sure. Maybe are they skewing, you know, kind of skewing the perspective with respect to how much progress we've made around making greener buildings. Sure. Um, well, well, so when it comes to, th there are many different ways to get credits and lead. Uh, so I'm talking right now about the materials-related uh, credits. Uh, so there, there are many ways to get those credits using concrete. No, no question. As I said, there are many producers in Canada of concrete who have these, they're, they're called environmental product declarations. It's kind of like it's a nutrition label, but for your product, except it talks about environmental footprints instead of uh, nutrition. So, so there are a lot of those that exist that can be used uh, to get points. Um, there also uh, are ways to get points by doing a life cycle assessment of the building, but it's just the embodied portion of the building. They call it a whole building life cycle assessment, but it doesn't include that energy consumption of the building. So as I said, in reality, when it comes to the whole environmental footprint of the building, you know, it could be like five, ten, maybe, maybe twenty percent of so, the whole. So, but isn't life cycle isn't that a pretty big flaw given what we've just established? And uh, I don't want to pick on your rubber sidewalk people, but <laughs> uh, I see the fallacy there. It's pretty, pretty, pretty blatant. Even if when you go to the rubber sidewalk, you just think of the level of effort required to continually be replacing, you know, the labor involved in continually replacing the infrastructure because it has a shorter lifespan. Isn't that a pretty fundamental flaw? Not to have that life cycle cradle to cradle assessment as part of the overall lead framework. Yeah. I think a lot of it has to do with historically how the industry is set up uh, in the for architects and builders and uh, developers and things like that. Generally, there are people who do energy analyses and then there are people who think about materials. And right now, they are thinking about those things separately. There are a lot of points you can get in lead for energy efficiency, and that's great because we know that that matters. It's just that the credits they have set up for materials then are kind of developed in its own silo. So right, for example, right. doing that whole building life cycle assessment, all you have to do is show that uh, to get points for the whole building life cycle assessment, here's a conventional building and I am building a building that has 10% or, or uh, more reductions in environmental impacts. Well, the reality is there's a lot of innovation that's going on in building buildings that uh, Use materials to enable reductions in energy efficiency. So there's discussions about you know net zero buildings or passive mm -hmm, mm -hmm. passive buildings. Those will typically have a higher embodied footprint because you use more materials to make it so that you're using less energy consumption. So that comes back to the importance of having that broader systems perspective to think about these things together. 
The reason that people aren't doing that is because the tools aren't really available yet to allow people to do that early in the design process. And it's a big part of the research that we're doing at MIT is coming up with tools that combine those things and can be used in the beginning of the design process when there's minimal information available. Because we think that's going to enable some of this breakthrough to allow people to make those decisions. But you know, it's very interesting because it's, uh, in some ways it's something very technical, but on the other hand, it's actually not. It's about how we think. Right, you, you know, you mentioned the systems word, and it, it's about how all the dots connect together. And I remember uh, many years ago when I just started out as a consultant, I was working on a downtown plan, and it was all about intensification and walking. And there was an architect who was a chair of the advisory committee, and the architect came up to me at the end of the meeting, and he said, "You know, all this is really interesting, but I just don't understand why we're not talking about sustainability because sustainability is so poor, important." And I like. You know, banged my head against the the table because he wasn't the connecting the dot that intensification and infill and creating a more walkable city was actually about creating a more sustainable city. The great irony is is that I later learned that this same architect lived about forty five minutes out of the city in a lead gold house. But he commuted in and out to the city for an hour and a half every day in his car and didn't connect the dots between his, you know, gold lead house that was placed in the wrong location, quite frankly, that resulted in giving him as an individual a very high environmental footprint. And it seems to me, you know, I always go back to the city building framework that what you're really talking about is being able to connect a series of those dots that when you just look at the material itself on the face of it may not lead us to a good framework for understanding sustainability. And and maybe you could talk a little bit about uh, manufacturing efficiency and about design efficiency and use efficiency a bit more and how they can all be really aggressively pursued, particularly around concrete, as a means towards, you know, my goal is uh, creating a more sustainable city overall and ensuring that we have the right materials to deliver on that objective. First, I want to comment on, you know, your... uh, Basically, this this thing about changing people's mindsets, you know, part of it is just that we're not used to thinking about these things. Uh, when we ask people, uh, we 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 have a case that we use with students that's about the life cycle assessment of shampoo. Mm-hmm. We show a study that was done um, by uh, Boots, which is a firm in the UK uh, that will have pharmacies, and uh, they did this Shoppers Drug Mart for our Canadian listeners. <laughs> Great, <laughs> the equivalent good, good. <laughs> CVS in the US. That's right. And uh, so th- they did a, a detailed study of uh, shampoo, and they measured everything about making the packaging, about making the shampoo about the water consumption and, you know, everything. And they have this detailed flow grabbing, everything that they incorporated. Um, and then they totaled up the the life cycle environmental impacts of that shampoo. What do you think was the biggest contributor to the footprint of uh, using shampoo? Uh, maybe the water washing your hair. Was that it? I it was, was at first, I was my, what first popped into my head was the plastic bottle. Yeah. But then I thought, wait a minute, but when you're, I, I'm learning. You're, you're pretty. I, I'm I learning. Say, actually, you, you're I definitely would, learning. I would you're not have given learning. that answer before this conversation. That's, honestly, I'm most learning. Most people will say the packaging or whatever. But I'm thinking about that use efficiency that you mentioned, is, and thinking about it's not the embedded energy in the car; it's the fuel use as a result of the 
terrible paving in the potholes that creates this this inefficiency. And in this instance, it's the water to wash your hair. Absolutely, yeah. And and the fact that we use hot water. Uh, so, for example, and hence dry shampoo. Dry <laughs> shampoo is a real innovation. <laughs> oh, I, I, I'm, there's, there's no question if you did that life cycle assessment that that would come out better. We've done studies on shaving as well, right? It's a similar thing. If you leave the water running while you're shaving, that hot water consumption dwarfs anything related to the blade and the uh, you know foam or what, whatever, right? And so it, it puts them in a little bit of an awkward position, boots, because they're selling the shampoo, but really it's how their customers use are it. Are using and the so, shampoo that's So what they, they did is they said, you know, we're working to reduce our environmental footprint. If you want to work to reduce yours, try taking colder showers, which is better for the environment and better for your hair. So, uh, well, that's they, they a really that. great sell. Exactly. <laughs> I bet so, customers I were all that over works, that one. But, okay, uh, great. Now I'm going to, no, no, no. I, what I, they really should be doing, honestly, is they should be developing and, you know, see, a male moderator would never get into this, but what they should really <laughs> be developing is a spectacular dry shampoo because there's a lot of dry shampoos, mm-hmm. which I'm sure the men in this room have never used. I Everyone's not, no. nodding. No, nope, no one, nope, no, no. Nope. Most women have used dry shampoos and they're all pretty crappy. So, you know, my plea to Boots would be develop us a spectacular, if you really care about sustainability, develop some great dry shampoos. Yes, yes, anyway, yes. that was a little, I, I, was, that was, was my liberty thing. as a moderator. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so let me bring us back to where I was trying to go with this. People aren't used to quantifying these things. Right, they don't have a right. general sense for how these numbers uh, shake out, right? And um, as a consequence, you know, when it comes to your example of someone driving far away but who lives in a green... Uh, that person may not know the relative magnitude of of driving your vehicle every day compared right, to what right. your, your the embodied impacts of your home. And so, part of this, and and that's what gets back to the the lead example of turning the ship around is just trying to educate people. And so, in some ways, although I would certainly like to see lead farther ahead. The fact that they're getting people just to quantify these numbers and look at their own firms and how they're producing things to say, gosh, I never realized that was my biggest uh, energy consumption or that's where my environmental impacts lay. You know, that's that's still progress. But, you know, it's really, I think another part of the story about um, the Boots example and the shampoo is that we need to do these um, inquiries as a way of beginning to get behind some of the, I want to say lifestyle, but that's not really the right word. Some of the ways that we live, that we have adopted, that are just simply so detrimental in terms of our individual environmental footprints that we need to rethink, that we need to really restructure and embrace in a different way. And unless you do that kind of analysis, we're never going to get to the point that you're talking about where you actually get people thinking differently and aware of the processes. You know, this... Uh, podcast is called Invisible City because it's all about kind of making transparent the things that are invisible in the city precisely because the more we understand them, we can begin to make different kinds of choices and we can begin to design our cities in different different ways. And I think this conversation is so critical and so pertinent to that because I think, you know, I'm going to bring it back to concrete, which is that I have to tell you, when a colleague of mine started talking to me about uh, sustainable concrete, I thought he was lobbying me. I really didn't get it. And the more the conversation went on, I became aware 
of how critical concrete is as a building material in our in our cities. So it was really about peeling back the layers and going, wait a minute, if we don't talk about this, it's something that we won't appreciate. We need to appreciate so that we can get better at it. We can refine it. We can value it. We can do it like the Romans did and invest over the long term instead of just going, oh, well, the life cycle doesn't really matter. Let's just throw up a new sidewalk or, you know, if we understand the importance of that longer term functionality, then we might be able to convince our municipal governments to invest for sustainability reasons in the material that in fact is going to have a longer lifespan, even though it's like the ceramic mug and it's going to cost us a lot more money to buy than the paper cup. This is why it's a really important policy discussion, right? If we just left these large decisions about infrastructure and buildings to the marketplace, then the marketplace favors low initial costs, right? And we see that in places where uh, there aren't pressures to take that longer-term perspective, right? We have building codes for a reason, right? Because we want to make sure that some of these longer-term issues are taken into consideration. But it's all the more reason then for municipal governments to take that lead even more and say, you know, in the buildings that we're going to build for ourselves, we're going to go a step further. You know, building codes are a minimum. We want to take that longer-term perspective and say, how long do we want this building to last? And uh, what's the function that we want it to perform? And what are the ways that we can reduce that overall environmental footprint? Not just of the materials that go into it, but how do they enable uh, better performance? And I think this is one of the things that makes the story a bit more complex, but is really critical to understand is that uh, you know, materials are enablers for performance, right? Mm-hmm, and so mm-hmm. just talking about materials by themselves is missing that broader picture uh, of basically how do you how do you combine those with innovation in design and as you mentioned as well, you know, social science aspects of the way that people interact with those different designs and and use them um, uh, in order to 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 create the, the most sustainable options. And <clears throat> there are, you know, plenty of examples of people of uh, uh, getting into uh, buildings and, uh, you know, they, they think it's a really sustainable design, but then people use it in a way that wasn't intended because there wasn't really a thought about how people would use thermostats or windows or, you know, things that, uh, and, and so so taking those broader considerations of how people are going to interact with this uh, along with that design is, is, is really important. Well, I can give a very personal example because uh, I work every day in a concrete building that uh, is a landmark building, City Hall, in the city of Toronto, built 50 years ago. And when it was built, it was completely open concept and all the systems were designed, the internal systems were designed for it to be open concept. Uh, it was ahead of its time in the 60s. And now today, well, really in the over the 70s and the 80s, the building was really bastardized internally and walls were put up and offices were created. And uh, what essentially happened was that all of the internal mechanical systems became uh, really um, compromised by the way the internal spaces were redesigned. So now 
I have the great pleasure of working in a building that is very hot in the summer and is very cold in the winter and everyone's got additional fans and additional heaters in their offices and sometimes you feel like the air is choking you. (laughs) Uh, But in fact, the way the building was designed was really progressive and sustainable. But in fact, the knowledge around how to live and work in that kind of a space didn't yet exist. It was, you know, there weren't enough people who really got it and who could drive that kind of office space forward. And as a result, it's really a building now that um, that is really compromised from an operational perspective. Although the city's actually doing a lot of work to make it, you know, a, a, a net zero building to operate, uh, but it's a it's a tricky space as a person who has to live in it every day, precisely because of how it's been, for lack of a better word, operationalized. This is a, a huge challenge, I think, for anything that you want to last dozens of years, right? Or hundreds, hopefully, you know, that basically we have to build things that can be adaptable, right? Because we don't really know how tastes and functionality are going to change over time. And some of the best examples we have of structures that last for a long time have been able to be adapted. There are many examples in many cities of buildings that we thought were old and and people were pushing to tear them down. And you got some innovative people in there to say, how can we keep that embodied investment that we already put in for something that's still really strong and it's going to last for a while and then adapt it for different functions. And those there are, there are many great examples of those in cities where things that people wanted to level and instead we said, let's keep that investment and then repurpose it and reuse it to get many more years out of it and keep that adaptability in mind. Well, you know, um, that's the story of the city of Toronto and, and many other cities that are rapidly growing. We're having these fights and battles on a, on a daily basis. And what's interesting is that um, it comes back to whether that... Um, embodied energy is actually valued because this gets back to being willing to spend the money up front, recognizing that you're part of a bigger system. And in Canada, we have a very bad story about building waste. A tremendous amount of our waste is actually, I don't know what the number is, but I think it's over 40% of the material going into our landfills is actually building waste material and including buildings that are being demolished. The challenge is, is that when you have an individual site with an individual builder, uh, yeah, what's that embodied energy worth to me? You know, it's not my problem if it ends up in a landfill. Um, what do I care about that in, in, in embedded energy? And so it really does come back to having strong public policy that establishes what we value. What is it that we value? And we do this in other ways. We're starting to do around energy efficiency. We're, you know, we have guidelines around protecting the public realm from wind and shallow, but strong public policy that also recognizes that our goal is to build a city for the long term. And that actually puts an obligation on anyone who is building, on developers, to actually build with quality materials that are going to be sustainable over the long term, in part because it's the right thing to do, but also because we, we're conscious, I think, as a society that we can't be so frivolous to be using paper cups every day. We just simply can't go there. We can't live that way any longer. That the debt we're creating to future generations is simply too great by making those kinds of choices. What? How does your work interface with the public policy piece of this? Because it strikes me that uh, the research is great, but unless it can connect to forcing different kinds of outcomes in the landscape of our city, 
we're not really going to be moving the needle on becoming more sustainable. A big part of what we do is try to demonstrate that there are ways to do these quantitative assessments of environmental impacts or, or life cycle costs. So how do you do that? Through modeling? Yeah, so we, we develop models. And let me give an example of one that we do for life cycle costs that includes hazard resistance. So basically by a hazard, I mean like a natural or it could be a man-made disaster as well, but let's say earthquakes or hurricanes, things like that. One of the things we're trying to demonstrate is that it's worthwhile to do more hazard resistant building. And what we do is uh, we can quantify for a given area where there's an assessment of a probability of uh, a disaster hitting uh, a particular place. So let's talk about a, a hurricane coming back to New York City, for example. There are people that estimate the probability of that hurricane going there. Um, and then what we can do is say for a given type of building design, What's the likelihood that there would be damage for a hurricane, okay? So for a more hazard-resistant design, you're going to have less damage with that over its life cycle. So once again, we basically can then calculate what's a payback period for more hazard-resistant design. A more hazard-resistant design is probably going to cost more upfront because it's going to be a more durable and stronger right, of design. Course. But you're going to have less likelihood of then doing damage throughout its life cycle uh, due to repairs from from hazards. So people just generally aren't used to thinking that you can even calculate that. Right, right, right. People are used to thinking about a payback period for, say, um, a more energy-efficient refrigerator, right? There right. comes a point where your refrigerator just gets too old and it's worthwhile to invest in a new one so that you have less operating costs associated with energy, right? People think about that for their heating or cooling system. They don't generally think about it in the context of the whole building, right? So we can do a similar thing, whether it be about energy consumption or hazard resistance. How do we make those calculations for a particular building? So a lot of what we do is just educating people, this, this can be done. Let's work with you to then do some examples of how you might apply that in a, a, a given space. So connect this to an outcome for me. Who, who have you worked with? Where has this been applied? Where it's actually having a tangible outcome that's resulting in a different kind of design thinking? Sure. I don't think we're at a space yet where I can say people have taken the research and then have used it in to build a building and then change their outcomes. And a lot of that, I think, is because we're we're trying to orient that that ship, uh, you know, or change the, the 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 ship's direction. But what we have done <clears throat> is uh, open people's eyes to the fact that these these kinds of things can be done. And where we see this going is actually trying to work with uh, developers to say, hey, you weren't expecting that you could calculate these life cycle environmental impacts uh, early on in the design, but we can show you how that's done. And even if they're not taking that into consideration yet with their designs, we're showing them how it can be done. And then the idea is that uh, a couple couple designs down the road, they say, let's let's include that from from the start. So right now it's it's working with uh, uh, developers, anyone who's making decisions about how they're going to be doing this type of infrastructure design early on. We on the pavement side, we have been working a lot with departments of transportation in doing these life cycle uh, uh, cost analyses and environmental impacts for their pavement networks to show them how they can use these tools to improve the decisions that they make around their pavement management. Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, as you were speaking, it occurred to me that um, 
we have this interesting phenomenon taking place in the city right now. For many years, we didn't build any rental housing at all. And now we have the private sector because of low interest rates, because of confidence in the city, because we have a low, very low rental vacancy. We have developers that are now building rental uh, for the first time in many, many years, in decades, really. And what's fascinating is that they're building really great buildings. And one of the reasons they're building great buildings is because they're going to own the asset. They're in the game for a long time. They're thinking about 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years. They're not thinking about, okay, I've got to get through uh, to the next five years when I sell this condo, and then it's the condo board's problem. It's not my problem anymore. And it strikes me that both in terms of building public sector buildings, whether it's libraries or schools or other kinds of community facilities, as well as buildings where the owner has a long-term interest in the asset, a university, a developer who's building rental housing as opposed to a condo builder, that that would be an area that is in fact fertile ground for beginning to bring in this new paradigm around thinking about life cycle costing and using that to drive decision-making precisely because there's a vested interest and a vested interest is always a really good place to start. Absolutely. There's no question that the innovations that are happening in financing are really starting to align more with these considerations of life cycle concepts. And um, let me give you an example. Um, we talk about developers who do build and sell as opposed to build and use or build right, and own, right? right? And that's exactly that's what you're it. getting as well. Talking to the build and own people is a very easy sell with this, right? Uh, I, I know uh, developers who are the, the developers building the largest uh, passive building is going to build and own that building, and it's a multi-family uh, 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 apartment unit. And he's interested in it because he included in the packages for the rentals for the family, he's going to be covering the utilities. And he thinks that's a great deal for them and for him as well. But that's his vested interest to make sure those are as energy efficient as possible. Um, on the paving side, we're transitioning from a model where basically a department of transportation does its own design and is very prescriptive and says, here's the design, you do the contract, we, we pay for it, and then we pay for the maintenance in the future from a different budget. Transitioning that to uh, public-private partnerships or uh, P3s that I'm sure you're familiar with, uh, where basically you can have many different versions of that, where basically a municipality or a department of transportation will say, uh, you finance the whole thing. You you mm -hmm, do the revenue. Mm -hmm. uh, you you come up with different models for that. You do the design. Here are the things that we are interested in and some minimum requirements that it has to meet. Um, but then let's do more innovation with that. And then basically, particularly if someone then has that longer term perspective of how they're going to own it, they have a very vested interest then in making sure that it's sustainable, you know, not just from the environmental standpoint, but from an economic standpoint and from literally providing that performance over a long time period. So tell us who in the world is doing concrete really well? I think that there are, what, what, what's interesting is that there are certain locations where they rely on concrete uh, primarily because it's the most abundant material that they have around. I think in North America, it's pretty unique that we can actually do so much building with wood, uh, for example, when it comes right. to uh, buildings. In a lot of places, that's not an option. Um, unfortunately, 
you know, in in many uh, developing countries, they're not doing so well with concrete because the building codes aren't as stringent and the enforcement isn't as stringent. And actually, I've heard some arguments made that, um, you know, in in some developing countries, the the real people who influence uh, politicians are the people who are in charge of concrete because infrastructure wow. is really big in those countries. And so uh, they will influence the politicians to get the contracts. And then in some instances, they don't actually deliver on the performance that they say that they they will. So there, there are plenty of examples, I think, of places around the world for various reasons that aren't doing concrete well. Um, I think the places that are doing concrete well are innovating in um, the ways in particular that it's incorporated into a building design. I can give you a great example of a really innovative building that's in um, Colorado, uh, just outside of Denver, and it's the National Renewable Energy Laboratory building, which is a U.S. Department of Energy uh, entity that looks at renewable energy. And they uh, spent a lot of time thinking about how can they design a building that embodies their ideals. Uh, and they ended up using concrete and they came up with some really innovative ways to leverage the thermal mass in the building. Uh, and that is basically concrete can be used to store heat and then release it uh, when it's needed most. Amazing. Uh, and so uh, they have uh, caverns in the basement that are concrete, and basically they can store air down there and then have nat through natural convection uh, have that come back when it's needed more. And so there, there really there are many instances of innovative uh, designs like that. Chicago has uh, an amazing building that uh, is made out of concrete and the surface of it looks like ripples of water. Uh, and it's one of the most talked about uh, buildings in Chicago because of the aesthetics around it. It also turns out to have um, some uh, very good structural and, and energy efficiency properties as well. Um, when it comes to uh, pavements, there are a lot of cities that are, uh, or uh, there are a lot of cities and departments of transportation that are relying on concrete, particularly in areas where you get a lot of uh, heavy traffic. So that's particularly where uh, concrete does well. So on um, uh, high traffic roads where you get a lot of trucks going by, you can really uh, leverage uh, concrete to provide benefits there. You also see it uh, in cities. We mentioned in, in Toronto here where you have the heavy weight of uh, the, the trains on the streets use concrete. You see it also where there are uh, buses. And so um, there are there, there are innovative ways to make the most of the benefits that you get from it, which can come from energy efficiency and also uh, resilience uh, and then the, the the structural properties of it as well, where you get the the heavy traffic. So great examples from your experience and from, you know, research is always ahead of what we're seeing on the ground. Is the best yet to come when it comes to concrete? Like, is it still before us? I think there are a lot of exciting opportunities for concrete in the future in a couple different areas. One is uh, the way that we design the mixes that are used in concrete. All concrete looks the same. It turns out there are very different ways that you can make uh, concrete actually to just be uh, stronger. There's what's called lightweight concrete. Uh, and then there's also a permeable concrete so that water can drain through it, which is used in some pavements and uh, parking lots and things like that. So, um, but there are ways to basically say, you know, let's not just use the same concrete we've been using in the past. Let's uh, innovate on the material composition, 
to really optimize the performance uh, using these different uh, components that we have and also reduce the environmental footprint of it as well. So there, there's a lot of opportunities to, I think, in, uh, change the way that we think about how we do construction. And are there things that we can do using more precise uh, uh using more precise and advanced techniques that happen off-site and then bring those to an on-site construction in order to make it more efficient and have less of a burden on the people who are in those uh, locations. So let's talk about water for a minute. Um, we know that a lot of water is required in order to produce concrete. And we also know that um, that was the whole problem with the boot shampoo was all of the water. So how do we, from a sustainability perspective, uh, you know, what's the tipping point in terms of the number of years that the infrastructure or the building must last to compensate for the fact that so much water is actually used in the manufacturing process? That must be a tension that you come up against all the time in being a voice for concrete as a sustainable material, given that water and fresh water is such a scarce research resource. Yeah, absolutely. It's a really important uh, consideration. And it turns out that there's a whole field of calculating a water footprint, just like we have people who calculate a carbon footprint. Uh, and it's yeah. the same approach to that life cycle assessment, um, because it turns out that the water that's uh, that is in a material is actually just a part of the whole water story, right? There's water used uh, in manufacturing every product, right? Just like uh, in, in food, we see that a lot, as you can Absolutely. imagine, right? So there's a water footprint. And it turns out that there's different types of water that we track. There is fresh water, uh, but there's also what they call gray water, which uh, can be repurposed from other yes, applications. Yep. And so um, what I see happening in the future is much more reuse of water. So gray water being used in production as opposed to using fresh water. Absolutely, absolutely. So I think there's going to be a lot of uh, innovations in that space. Uh, and this is a, a chemistry problem, right? Basically, you need to know the chemical composition of what's in the water, what's in the cement, and, and how the aggregates are. Get them to combine together properly so you get a good product, but it's 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 definitely something that can be overcome, and that's the opportunities that I see for innovation there. With well, it's probably also conceivable that at some time in the relatively near future that we'll look back and say, can you believe we used to use fresh water to make concrete? Like that that will seem like an incredibly extravagant thing to do. Just like I think we will look back and say, wow, we had drinking water in our toilet bowls. Yeah. Because <laughs> uh, in most houses we do. That uh, We'll look back and say, wow, that was really extravagant. You're absolutely right. I think there's a lot of opportunities to think about how we reuse water and concrete is definitely one of those. And so it could in fact be that in a drive to make concrete more sustainable, that it leads to innovations around water and water use in some ways as a byproduct of actually seeking that sustainability agenda. Absolutely. We like to talk about that people respond to pressures, right? Uh, and environmental pressures For are sure. no different. If you start asking those questions, then people start quantifying those. That's what gets them to take action, right? I think what's new and exciting about what's happening now is that we're starting to ask different questions. Originally, that causes people to be afraid, but I think ultimately, once they get used to those numbers uh, and say, you know, this isn't as bad as I thought, it's just changing my way of thinking. Changing a way of thinking can sometimes be scary and take time, <laughs> but I think it does happen. And uh, but it all comes down to asking the right questions, and 
that's where I think really that municipal governments can play a really important role. Start out by asking those questions. Once you get some good answers, then you start uh, mandating uh, things or or putting policy putting policy in place. Typically, it's a you know it's a bit of a carrot and stick. It's both. Uh, but you know, it's funny, we've really come full circle because we started out talking about how this is really about thinking. It's a way, it's about the way we think about materials. It's about the way we think about design. It's about connecting dots that hadn't been connected in the past and then integrating that thinking in such a way that we do things differently such that we're creating more sustainable outcomes in society. Absolutely. People think about uh, a, a really fundamental concept of cradle-to-cradle thinking or, or any of these things you really see about circular economy. People are interested in services, right? They don't ask for a concrete pavement or a concrete building. They ask for, you know, I want a means of transportation. Absolutely. Right? I want uh, shelter. I want this or, or, or that. And But it's our job as the people who are thinking about those things to think about how we assess sustainability and people will then judge it on based on its performance, but also will want to know about its environmental footprint as as well. But the, but those of us who are kind of looking behind the curtains have to have the right lens to ask those questions and then measure sustainability properly. You know, it's funny, Jeremy. I often um, people are always approaching me about like um, you know parkets and parking spots and kind of um, interventions in the urban environment that are somewhat temporary, short term. And I resist a lot of that because I'm so concerned about what we're building over the very long term, what will be sustained for future generations in terms of what we build in the landscape of the city. And it strikes me that the work you're doing is so aligned with ensuring that we're getting long-term outcomes that result in great cities over generations as opposed to places that right now are placing a real burden on what future generations are going to have to achieve. I'm a convert. You got me today. Uh, Thank you so much for coming into the studio. You're welcome. It's been my pleasure. Well, there you have it. Not only the possibility of sustainable concrete, but the importance of getting it right is pretty clear. Bob Marley writes in Concrete Jungle that no sun will shine in my day today. The high yellow moon won't come out to play. Darkness has covered my light. Concrete has traditionally been associated, to use Marley's words again, with where the living is hardest, with a city noir. But there is another possibility as we seek to transform our cities with a long view in mind. In that future, sustainable concrete is associated with not just shadows, but with light, with every shade of green, exactly the kinds of colors we want that we are pursuing in our cities today. I'm Jennifer Kiesmat, and this is Invisible City.
Invisible City is a product of Lossless Creative produced in my beautiful city, Toronto. Each episode features an original score produced by Lossless Creative. I'd like to thank Gregory for coming into the studio today. I never imagined that we could have spent over an hour talking about concrete, but we just did and the time flew by. If you have liked what you heard, could you give us a rating or a review? It will really only take a moment and it would mean the world to us. Ryan and I are a small but passionate team and we would be so thrilled to know that we have your interest and your support. All of our episodes are on our website, invisiblecitypodcast.com.